Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we're going to be talking about public goods funding for crypto protocols. And joining me are Tim Biko and Trent Van Epps. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for some time. They've both been involved in the Ethereum ecosystem for many years. I think they are two of the most active and knowledgeable participants about just Ethereum as a protocol, as an ideology, and have worn a bunch of different hats across the ecosystem. I came across their recent Uniswap discussion, which is to fund a a new public goods organization called the Protocol Funding Guild. It's meant to fund core development and, and core infrastructure that benefits Ethereum as a whole. And yeah, so I think this conversation is really to touch on that and touch on some of the governance work and proposals that they're working on, but also just to talk about public goods funding as a whole. I think it's a major evergreen question for, for crypto protocols. I think there's many different approaches that different L1s and different apps have taken. And yeah, I think it'll be interesting to hear their perspective on how sort of Ethereum's taken a very deliberate approach and, and how that compares to, to other ones and sort of just the genesis of this protocol funding yield idea. So without further ado, welcome, Tim and Trent. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Really appreciate it. So to jump right into it, could you guys each give a quick introduction of just who you guys are and, and what you guys are up to? Starting with Tim. Sure. My name is Tim Bako. I work at the Ethereum Foundation. There I run what is called the All Core Devs Call, where different client teams working on the Ethereum protocol discuss potential changes to the network. So I've been doing that for a few years, replacing Hudson Jameson, who had done it for many, many years prior. And then before that, I worked at Consensus as part of their protocol team there on one of the actual Ethereum clients, Hyperledger Basu, as I was a product manager on that team for a few years. Yeah, and a short intro for me is I, I got involved in Ethereum where I discovered it in 2016, decided to switch careers in 2018 after having, you know, gotten sucked down the rabbit hole pretty deeply. I was involved in the DAO pretty active in observing and, and trying to understand ProgPow when it first came up. And just over the years, I've been pretty interested in the Allcore Dev Call. Like I, I listened to it for years without really even having any role there, but I was just super interested in, in what it was and, and how people were organizing around it. And then once I switched over to working full-time in the space, I worked at a company called WhiteBlock to start in 2019 and then did a year at ETH Global. And then like Tim, I'm at the EF. I joined in March of last year and I've been doing very similar stuff to Tim, coordinating network upgrades. We both worked on 1559 and now a lot of our focus is on coordinating the merge, making sure people are aware of the expectations to the network. Yeah. And it's, it's a blast. And now on this podcast, I think it's important to say that we are, we both work for the EF, but we're, we're here as members specifically of the protocol guild. So um, yeah, just, I think it's important to set that out there. Awesome. Thanks guys for that introduction. And yeah, excited to, to jump right into it. But funny to hear you talk about ProgPal. I feel like that is, honestly, I've not heard that word in, in a long time, but I remember a year and a half, two years ago, ProgPal was was a pretty controversial and, and actively discussed topic, just how 
Ethereum should handle ASICs and, and miners. And yeah, it was just an interesting reference to bring up. Yeah, the, the bear markets are where the interesting governance discussions always happen. And that was one of the big ones in the last bear market, I think. I'm assuming that Progpow ended up like nothing happened, right? Because I haven't sort of heard about it in, in any way recently. That's a really long discussion that we probably don't have time for here. But yeah, some other protocols did implement it, but no, not didn't ever move forward on Ethereum to mainnet. Makes sense. Awesome. So I guess just to set the context, right? Like the main topic here really is just public goods funding, funding core development. Could you guys talk a little bit about what the current state of of core development is for Ethereum? Like there's a ton of entities working on it, but but who actually who who actually are those different parties and and how are they just generally compensated? Where does where does the incentive come from? Sure. Yeah, I I, I can give a quick overview. So like you said, there there are many different teams that work on this and it's worth kind of going over over a, at a high level. So the people who do the most of the work of the actual protocol development are client developers. And so these are teams that basically write software for Ethereum clients. And in case your your listeners are not actually familiar with like what's an Ethereum client, it's the software that allows you to connect to the Ethereum network. So it's when people say you run a node on the network, it is like that software. And for like less technical listeners, I think the best analogy to think of an Ethereum client is like a web browser. So there's many different web browsers. You know, there's Chrome, Firefox, Opera. They each have their own features and characteristics, but they all interoperate. You know, you can go to like twitter.com on Chrome or Firefox and you get the same web page that loads. And Ethereum clients are kind of Similar in that, you know, they each have different like optimizations and, and use cases that they, they try and build around. But at the end of the day, they all kind of implement the Ethereum protocol and, and speak to one another. So to go a bit deeper, there's two types of Ethereum clients. So there's what we now call execution clients. And you can think of those broadly as like ETH1 clients. So these are teams like Geth, Nethermind, Besu, and Aragon. And these clients basically run the current proof of work chain, execute all the transactions and smart contracts, and do a bunch of other stuff like syncing, providing APIs for users to interact with the network and whatnot. In parallel to those, we have what are called consensus clients or basically E2 clients, which run the beacon chain. So today, Ethereum has you know, a proof of work chain with applications. It has in parallel to it, beacon chain, which runs a proof of stake consensus algorithm. And there's a different piece of software that you need to run to be on the beacon chain. And that's what a consensus client is. And, you know, the teams working on that are teams like the Prism team, Lighthouse, Nimbus, Teku, Lodestar. So that's like the software you would run on the beacon chain. And then there's obviously this big transition to proof of stake that we're doing, which means that you'll kind of need to run both in parallel. You're going to need to run a client on the beacon chain to kind of sync with that and and get the latest state there. And then a client on the execution chain to actually process transactions. And so the people who like write that software are like in terms of direct contributions to the protocol, kind of the core group, and they're split up across a bunch of different organizations. So today, the only kind of team within the EF that does this is the GET team. And the other kind of nine teams are split across a bunch of different companies. So Consensus has a few. So Consensus has both an execution and consensus layer client. 
Nethermind is another team, Aragon is another team, Chainsafe, Prismatic Labs, and whatnot. And so there are all these kind of independent companies working on that. Beyond just the client developers themselves, there's probably two other big groups, or maybe three. So the, the first other big group is just researchers. So there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking about what are the new things we're going to do at Ethereum and like what's even possible like in terms of cryptography, in terms of technology. And so these folks, obviously, they don't write the production software that goes into the clients, but they kind of come up with the ideas that then inform the design for things like the proof of stake algorithm. So they're obviously hugely important. The other probably much smaller group in terms of people that we have is people who help with coordination. So that's folks like me, Trent, Danny Ryan as well, who does a bit of everything. And, you know, we... We are not part of like an actual client development team, but we help kind of run the calls where these developers work together, talk through like issues, set up events for them to collaborate and whatnot. And then finally, there's also some testing and DevOps teams, both within the EF and within some of these companies who don't necessarily write the code for those clients, but they, they make sure that like the code actually works. And they're obviously very valuable in, in making that safe. So kind of to sum up, you have a really big group of people actually writing the software, a smaller group of people doing the research, an even smaller group of like people who are just focused on testing and DevOps, and a very small group of basically a handful of people who help with, with coordination across all this. And to, to tag on to that, like, how are these? So that's, that's like a really good overview of who's doing the work or like what is what we consider public goods, people who are working on them and the organizations that they're associated with. And then I think the follow-up question was like, how are they actually compensated? So like Tim said, some of these teams are companies. So they'll do contracting work for you know, projects throughout the ecosystem. And then they'll also maintain a client or they work for a larger company and they're paid salaries. There's a pretty wide variety for how all these teams are structured. So there's no like one size fits all. Some of them, actually the, the EF does fund a fair bit through either grants or other programs, uh, maybe Tim, if you want to jump onto the client incentive program after this, but the EF does play a large role in funding some of these teams. And that's probably going to be the norm or, or that'll probably maintain for the next, like the near term. But part of our goal is to broaden the source of funding beyond just the EF. And then beyond that, you have projects like that have been around for a while, like Gitcoin. You're probably familiar with this, this project if you're in Ethereum, they run quadratic funding rounds every quarter, and they use a quadratic allocation mechanism to determine who should get a certain share of a matching pool from different sponsors. They do this quarterly, and you know they've been doing it for years, trying to drive funding to public goods. There's another project called Open Open Grants, which does vested ETH streams. I was involved in that project early on, and the other one which comes to mind is Optimism has been experimenting with what they call retroactive public goods funding, where there's similar to, to Gitcoin, there's like this nomination and allocation process where they look back on who's done valuable or meaningful work for the Ethereum protocol or the ecosystem broadly, and then they allocate funding to them. And that's the optimism specific mechanism. Tim, yeah, if you want to jump into the client incentive program, and then maybe if I missed any public goods funding projects. No, yeah, I think that was really good. So. You know, like like Trent said, there's all these different companies. They each compensate like their employees. It's also worth noting that there's a bunch of 
ad hoc random people who contribute to Ethereum who we have no idea what their affiliation is to do this, you know, on their own time because they like it. So there's also like a group of like floating contributors who are also quite valuable to the project. And so broadly though, you know, companies and, and organizations will pay their contributors some amount of salary. If it's like a larger company, think something like consensus, the employees would also have like equity in, in that company or something like that. And that's not something that EF gets involved in at all. So, you know, there's different companies who are each free to, to be organized as they want. The EF, as Trent said, does provide grants to clients. And over time, you know, this has shifted from like kind of a survival mindset where just, you know, like it wasn't clear how these teams could actually make any money. And, and I think now it's moved a bit more to like a long-term incentivization and alignment mindset where like, I think most of these teams, you know, manage to, to make money one way or another and, and are not like scrambling to meet payroll anymore. But the thing that we want to ensure from the EF is even beyond that, you know, even like beyond the basic financial support and, and subsistence of those teams, how do we like provide them long-term incentives to be aligned with the Ethereum network? And so one program that we announced late last year is, is we call the Client Incentive Program. And there the idea is that we've given every team who's built a client that's mainnet compatible prior to the launch of this program, a large amount of validators to run using their software and over time, those validators kind of vest to the teams and unlock to them and kind of give them access to not only the rewards and, and transaction fees from validating, but also kind of the principal 32 ETH stakes that are part of, of the validator deposits. So overall, every team has gotten about 4.6 thousand ETH, which is 144 validators that are vested over several years. And that's like a way where the EF doing that across basically the nine or 10 teams on the client side helps have like a strong alignment with Ethereum. So yeah, that's probably the biggest lift we've done on the EF. And one thing to note is, you know, whether it's grant, whether it's this incentive program, all of these kind of programs tend to be targeted at organizations, right? Because it's much easier to make one grant to consensus and to Nethermind and to Aragon than, you know, to every single employee there or contributor there. And this is kind of one of the reasons that the starting protocol guild is even though the organizations that manage these clients are, are obviously incredibly valuable, we also want to make sure that there's mechanisms that exist in the space to directly incentivize the actual contributors, like the actual people who are part of those teams who are doing the work. And that was a big part of the reasons for setting up Protocol Guild. Really great overview, guys. And yeah, a lot to unpack there. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like obviously all of the clients are sort of super essential. There's various types, various entities creating those clients. Those clients are not necessarily directly monetizable, nor should they be, but there remains a a healthy environment of, of funding from many different sources, both from the EF and from private companies and, and other individuals. And sort of, there's also just a much broader ecosystem of, of people outside of those core client teams, just helping, maintaining, testing. And yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty, just, there's just a, a lot, a lot going on there. I'll also add that we have done fun things like we've sold NFTs in recognition of projects like, or not projects, but like when the Beacon Chain went live, we sold some NFTs associated with it and like released a book. And by we, I mean Stateful Works is a separate organization. 
And then Tim and I collaborated on 1559 NFTs and we'll probably do something for the merge as well. But yeah, so there's like a whole range of ways that, and then, sorry, the proceeds go to the people that worked on those, those mechanisms themselves. So another like maybe less well-known way that public goods are funded. Awesome. I actually had, had no idea. I got to check those out, add them to the, to the show notes after. One question about just sort of state of Ethereum funding is what do you guys see as the, the EF's role? And obviously they've taken a pretty intentional, I'd say, historical approach of, of we will help fund individuals and, and teams, but we will not be necessarily actively setting direction ourselves and sort of doing decision-making top-down for the protocol. Like we may have our opinions, but we will leave space for, for others to really take the mantle and and sort of that's what's most healthy. And, and it's a very deliberate approach that's, I think, different from most other L1s, if not all, right? You look at I mean, just to name some, not not to call them out, but just because they're different, like Solana Labs or or Ava Labs or or Terraform Labs, right? All these other L ones, they have very sort of top down, centralized sort of core teams. Like, just curious, like how how you think the messaging for the EF has emerged and, and evolved over time? Yeah, that that's a good point. It's definitely the case that like even if it wanted to, the EF can't really force Ethereum in a specific direction unless the community wants to. And one one example I like to give here is Vitalik has a bunch of EIPs that have been pending for like a year or two that, you know, for whatever reasons, client developers do not prioritize above other things. And to me, that's kind of a healthy sign that like even Vitalik has some stuff that's like stuck in the queue and he personally would like to see move quicker. But, you know, the kind of consensus amongst client teams ends up not favoring those. And I think I think there's there's like many reasons for this. It's like one, even if like the EF wanted to like set a specific direction, you know, we could at best potentially fund people to do some specific thing or not. But then if the community does not agree with that, you still need, even if we've convinced all of these client teams, you then still need to convince all of the community that they should upgrade their nodes and run this new version of the software and you know follow this upgrade. So because you know there's this like, I don't know, resistance from the community to, to run software that, that they don't agree with, then you kind of trickle down from there where it's like, okay, well, then in that case, client developers probably should only work on stuff that like the community thinks is important. And in that case, it doesn't make much sense for the EF to even try and like nudge thing in one direction or another. Yeah, so I I think it's just like a, it's something that like over time as the community grows and as Ethereum kind of maintains this culture of people running nodes and, you know, the nodes on the network kind of coming to consensus about what the rules of the protocol are, it's less and less possible for like a single entity, whether that's the EF, whether that's another entity to come and like single-handedly change things. That said, you know, I think we do obviously spend a lot of time discussing amongst client developers and researchers and, and obviously amongst the entire Ethereum community, like what are the big important things we should work on? And that's probably the thing that informs kind of the, the roadmap in the medium term the most. Like obviously we're working on proof of stake now, you know, there's a strong desire to then do data sharding so that that roll-up fees become lower. So those things are kind of, decided at a very broad level by the community. And I think the, the other bit as well is 
there's a part of this where for the software to actually be implemented by clients, the research has to be done. And in practice, in practice, it's very rare that like there's two research efforts about important things on Ethereum that end up being like ready right at the right at the same exact time. And that's something that I used to worry about and don't anymore. So, you know, like people might ask, like, well, okay, why did you like do proof of stake before data sharding? And the short answer is just, you know. There was a specification and, and the research was far enough advanced that we could do that thing first and it takes more time to do the other thing. Yeah. So anyways, just to, to kind of summarize, like I think, yeah, the, the EF obviously doesn't try to like influence these, these decisions through grant making or whatnot. We want to support the Ethereum community. And I think even if it wanted to, it would be quite hard to do it because we'd have to then convince the entire community that this is the right path. and. Unless it actually was, I don't see that happening. Yeah, to add on to that, when people think about the EF or what its role is in the ecosystem, there's probably two phrases that come to mind, especially they've been used over the last few years. And the first is credible neutrality. This is something that people who work there and a lot of the broader ecosystem or the broader like Ethereum community takes really seriously. They think that this is something that's worth pursuing. And maybe for, for listeners, credible neutrality is the characteristic of composing yourself or operating, giving guidance in such a way that you don't compromise the underlying characteristics of the ecosystem. So Ethereum itself, the EF isn't going out there and making explicit comments or trying to influence the ecosystem one way or another. It's much more of a a mirror and it will provide funding to the direction that the ecosystem itself or the community wants to go into, but it's not going to compromise the reputation that it's built up over the years by trying to weigh in on really sensitive issues. It's very clearly a, a key component of the community. The EF has played an important role from the early days until now, and probably for the next few years, it will be really important to getting important scaling initiatives funded, for example. But over time, and we've seen this happen more and more, is the EF wants to step back and delegate these decision-making and this guidance to the community such that it doesn't ruin or spoil the capacity for the community to make its own decisions and direct its own future. And I think so credible neutrality is just super important for how the organization sees itself and the people that work there. And I think that's I happen to agree that it's it's really important that that continues into the future. And then the other, the other phrase, which when people hear about the EF or they're familiar with it, they'll hear the term gardener, like they're not intervening directly to, you know, shape the ecosystem in a certain way. You know, the EF's job is to create the right conditions for beautiful organisms or unique objects to flourish. And I, I've actually joked, I've pushed back on this, gardener seems much more tame and like sandboxy than than it should be. In reality, the people at the EF and you know broadly throughout the community, I think it's much more of a like forest ranger vibe. Like there's no there's no controlling what happens throughout like a national park in the U.S. is where I'm from, so it's, it's immediately comes to mind. But like forest rangers, they're there to like make sure funding gets the core infrastructure, the trail system, the places that hikers need to rest in making sure it's safe for the human participants, but they're not going out there and, you know, trying to control every single plant that's growing or 
controlling all the animal species that are allowed in the park. Like this is, it's part of what makes these parks so incredible to experience is that they're raw, natural, full of biodiversity and vibrant life that you're not going to find in something like a monoculture forest or like a timber management system. Like this is just not going to happen. Yeah. So the, the idea of a gardener and that you're stewarding this ecosystem forward is another really big thing. But uh, I think I'm going to try to push for like forest ranger. The dark forest ranger, I think, is what we landed on lately. But yeah, I think those are two really important themes. Or you could just go park ranger as the framing. There you um, go. I, yeah. do, I do really like that. And I have never actually heard that sort of analogy before, sort of forest park ranger. I think it makes a lot of sense. I guess, yeah, this provides a pretty natural segue to just like, yeah, we've talked about the state of public goods funding generally on, on Ethereum. We've talked about some of the client teams and, and the EF and, and some of the other companies. Like, where does the protocol funding guild fit into this? Where did the need come from? And it seems like it's something you guys have been been working on for some time. So, yeah, we'd love to learn the, the story. Sure. Yeah. This is, like you said, a perfect segue because the way the EF frames its relationship to the ecosystem is like, we should allow experiments to happen. There's no certainty that they are going to have the best solution. And over time, you've seen the EF reach out to support members of the community or projects in the community like Gitcoin. They've been matching partners. They've supported ETH Global, other domain experts like ETH Staker to really run with this experimentation. And I think within this context is really what the protocol guild is allowed to exist within in that like there's this freedom to experiment there's this idea of many different approaches are always better than a single one and i just want to recognize that this is kind of a key key part of what made this thing actually possible in the first place so what is the protocol guild i guess i'll start with that and then pass it over to tim but so the protocol guild broadly is it's an organization made up of Ethereum core protocol contributors. Like Tim mentioned, the people that are working on clients, they're doing research, coordinating network upgrades, core protocol contributors. And this organization maintains an on-chain registry of the membership in a smart contract. And this allows the ecosystem to directly fund the membership, their work, what we would consider public goods. So that's like the simple explanation of what it is, it's just maintaining an on-chain registry, which is updated as that membership changes over time. And, you know, the way we use this on-chain registry is by getting people to, or soliciting sponsorships for this pilot we're working on. So, and, and hopefully over time, this will start to turn into more of a flywheel, you know, as we build norms around it, but we're trying to work on soliciting donations to this mechanism which donations are vested over one year for the pilot. And there's a couple of different things we want to do with why we think this is important, why we believe that community funding of core devs is crucial and, and why we're focusing on tokens. But I'll, I'll let Tim address that. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good overview of, of what Protocol Guild is. And, and then the, the question is like, well, you know, if we've talked about these teams get paid a salary and the EF provides them like nominated incentives, like, why do you even need something else? And I think there it, it becomes much more a question of like opportunity costs. So what we see is that people who like work on a core protocol, they do get like a salary and, and, and you know, they will participate in like the ETH bonuses that their team gets from the EF. 
But at some point, they look at you know what else could they be doing with their life rather than work on the core protocol, and 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 realize that well, if instead of working on L1, I went to work say on a DeFi project, I could make you know ten, a hundred, a thousand times the same amount of money, and. That leads people who, even though they would prefer to work on Ethereum L1, to you know rationally go and 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 work at the application layer rather than the protocol layer, simply because you know issuing a new token that starts as a value of basically zero provides much more upsides than ETH can ever will because it's it's a mature asset. And the idea with Protocol Guild is that if we can get you know projects on Ethereum to eventually Default to putting a small fraction of their supply in Protocol Guild and then distributing that supply kind of trustlessly over the different L1 contributors. The sum of those contributions provides high enough incentive to be comparable with going to work at the application layer directly. And I don't think it has to exceed it, right? Like it might always still be net better to go work on the application layer than the protocol layer if you join a successful project. But the way I think about this is it's like a risk reward curve. Like obviously if you if you take more risk and, and work on like an early stage startup rather than on Ethereum, you should be expected to take more reward. And that's totally fine. But I think what we see today is like that risk reward curve is very skewed where contributors to the protocol might be able to take you know one extra unit of risk and get 10 extra potential units of reward. And, and that makes it kind of a, a no-brainer for them to do that. And the hope is that with Protocol Guild, you know, you provide enough upside because you have a large number of projects who've contributed to them and those projects are successful, such that it makes sense financially for contributors to stay and work on, on the layer one. And the follow-up question is then, well, why, why would any project want to put money in Protocol Guild? And I think that the short answer there is. Because a lot of projects built on Ethereum basically have a dependency on the network to be reliable, to be secure, to keep innovating. And that layer one being able to retain contributors and keep working on it means that we are able to kind of provide more value to all these projects. Like if everybody leaves after three years because they realize they could just go working in DeFi instead, it means that things like scaling take longer, things like getting new EIPs take longer. And I think for like applications on Ethereum, at least every single one I've talked to, that's not what they want. They want to have like kind of a robust set of people working on the core protocol so that they have high confidence that they're building on the best platform. And yeah, and, and I think we can achieve that by like a pretty small donation in terms of like percent of supply from projects to the protocol guild. Obviously, this is like a new idea. And we're all trialing this. So we're starting a bit smaller. We're reaching out to just a smaller number of projects to make sure that like we can we can have kind of a, a pilot on this and, and and tweak things as we go. But the hope is over the medium and long term, it becomes a sort of norm in the community that new projects contribute a small percentage of their tokens there. And that allows kind of ample funding for protocol developers and researchers. I think I can also add, add some more like historic context of like, this isn't necessarily a new idea or even that novel really it's just a registry on chain but like going back over the years people have always asked like okay how do i contribute to core development and some people have their addresses public but there's no single mechanism that that collects all of the core contributors into one place and is actively maintained so people over the years have often asked or even projects have asked okay how do i contribute and the answer is always well 
well, there's no answer really because it, it never existed and there's no avenue or no mechanism that actually facilitated something like this. So in that respect, it's it's actually quite quite new in that nothing like this has existed before. So, you know, over the past few years, the conversation has come up at least once or twice a year of like, okay, what is the community's relationship with core development funding? Like, how can we actually participate in this process? And we think it's something that's really important for the community to start participating in. This is like Tim mentioned, it's dependency management. You want to make sure that the foundation that you're building on is properly funded. If you have a protocol that has a token or is revenue producing, there should be a mechanism for you to give back to the protocol. And I think we can also emphasize that like this is completely opt-in for both the members and sponsors. This, this isn't like a tax that's being instituted across the ecosystem. We're really interested in engaging with people who grasp why this is important, why community funding of the core protocol is important. And similarly, we don't want to force any core contributors to feel like they're obligated to joining this thing. That's completely out of line with, I think, the ethos of crypto broadly and Ethereum specifically. I think we've reached out to 130 or so core contributors and maybe about 10% said they're not interested or for, for whatever reason, it wasn't a fit for them. So this isn't like the canonical definition of what a core dev is. It's just some selection of people who've opted into this. Yeah, I think that's what I wanted to add. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add one more thing on that. You know, not only is it optional for people to join, obviously, you know, it's not the only way for people to donate. There's a bunch of other great initiatives that we, we mentioned earlier on in the call that, that do great work for public good. So we don't, want, we don't want this to be the exclusive and only way to donate. I think maybe a very technical way to, to think about it is Protocol Guild provides a really clean API for projects that do want to donate. And one, you know, one project I'll highlight who is not part of Protocol Guild, but like did a really good job of, of donating to core contributors was Element Finance. So they they had their airdrop and in their airdrop kind of looked at all the GitHub repositories for all of like the public goods projects on Ethereum and came up with this entire process for contributors to those repositories to be eligible for the airdrop and, you know, have a way to also obscure kind of their identity so that their ETH address is not mapped to their GitHub username. And they did all this work and distributed all of this. And it's absolutely great to see that. But I think you can think of Protocol Guild as basically replacing all of that work with just a single smart contract address, you need to plug in your Merkle airdrop and that's it, right? Like you don't need to come up with a whole complicated scheme for like, how do you even determine who's eligible? How do you de determine distribution? The protocol guild basically owns that part and exposes that as an Ethereum address, which can receive any token and it'll just vest those over time to that set of members. One last thing to add is that while we're focusing for the pilot on you know, these tokens from prominent projects on Ethereum, this is, it's not an opinionated funding mechanism. Any sort of asset can be sent to it. And that's kind of long-term, we, we hope that it will grow into a generalized funding mechanism for the core protocol. We're not expecting that everything sent to it is going to have some sort of upside exposure. That's kind of what we're focusing on. And we do view it as incredibly important for sort of balancing the incentives between working on the core protocol versus going to work at the application layer. Definitely, that's one of the key goals we want to attempt to tackle with the pilot. But long term, this can, like I said, it's unopinionated what assets it can accept. 
it's permissionless. Anybody can send to the contract. So, you know, expect future iterations of this project to target stable coins, to target fractionalized NFTs, ETH. We'd love to see ETH directly donated to this. Any number of assets, interest-bearing assets, things like that. But yeah, that's part of the long-term vision. Really great overview, guys. Honestly, answered a lot of a lot of my my follow up questions, but I think yeah, like as a whole, I think definitely agree. One of the biggest problems in terms of incentives has been like once a protocol has has gone live and and launched, how do you actually retain contributors and how do you you keep people involved? Like these sort of mid stage or, or later stage protocols, whether they're apps or L ones, like at a certain point. Like it's it's so easy to get venture funding launch token within a very short time frame during this past past two years of, of a bull market that it's just the incentives just are misaligned. And I think I think it's starting to change now that like I, I think venture funding is is a bit more cautious. Prices have have come down a little bit. So I think just by the natural order, it's the sort of risk reward as you put it, Tim, to working on more established protocols with longevity. It's it's just it's more secure at this point, but I think irrespective, it's yeah, definitely good to to provide an incentive to developers to continue just building, maintaining, and and knowing that there's yeah, giving them like at least a, a real choice compared to to the next best alternative. Yeah. So one other thought is like I, I remember reading in the in the proposal like you got there is a pretty interesting and, and novel just like mechanism for how funds are going to be managed and, and secured. Can you talk a bit about just like the sort of new contracts you guys have, have created and how funds will be managed? Like, will will the recipients be, be receiving the tokens? Will will the funds be sold to ETH and everyone will just get ETH? Or how are you guys thinking about the more logistical operational side? Sure. So we've had the pleasure of working with a team called ZeroX Splits. They've been working, I think, since, since last sometime in Q3 last year on this this splits protocol. And if you're not familiar with it, a split, it just takes a set of addresses along with weights and it exists as a contract. So if I send one ETH to a split contract, it'll be divided up between however many members are there and the weights that we've given to it. And so we've been working with them to build, I think what they call the modules, but they're vesting modules that anyone can deploy that feed into the underlying split contract itself. And they've been amazing to work with. I have nothing but kind words to say about them. If you're thinking of using them, the protocol is amazing, super responsive. So big shout out to the ZeroX Splits team and the work that they've done. So yeah, we we worked with them to figure out like what would be an ideal, what would be a good architecture for this, this vesting contract and sort of tuned it a little bit to fit to what we need. So we were really, really happy to work with them. And another thing that they added which is crucial to how the protocol guild operates and something that they hadn't considered before is that the the split itself is mutable. So when you when you deploy the contract you can decide whether you want it to exist in that state forever or whether there's an address which can update the set the set and its weights. And that was really important for our use case because we didn't want to have to redeploy a new contract every time there's an update to the set. So for one there's people who there's new members and we want to be able to include them in the set without deploying a new contract each time at a different address. And 
the mutability feature that they added for us was really crucial in enabling that. So for one, if there's new people joining core protocol stuff, we want to add them. They should be recognized for their work. If there's people leaving to you know, work on other things, they should be removed. This is kind of like the core functionality of what the Protocol Guild as an organization does. It maintains this registry to as accurately as we can reflect reality. And so the other thing that the Guild itself does is it manages the weights. And manage is probably the wrong term to use here because what we've decided to do is... Curates. Curates. Right. Well, well, yeah, it curates the set, but it one of the guide, stepping back, like one of the guiding meta goals we had is that we don't, we want to reduce the amount of management or decisions. Overhead. That, exactly. We want to limit the overhead as much as possible. So what we've done for waiting within this split is it's simply time-based. So if you've been around for five years and I've been here for two and a half, you'll have almost double the wait. And I say almost because we also square root the weight and then that's the final the weight in the set and we think that's really important because it reduces the total variance of the range you know some people have been around since the launch of the launch of ethereum and that's you know that's amazing and that should be rewarded but then you have somebody who who joined today or six months ago and kind of inherent in this or a key part of this entire project is that we incentivize new people to join and keep them sticking around for those. I think Tim has used the the barbell term. You know, we've got people who join early and the people who stick around for five plus years. We want to incentivize people to stick through that, you know, two to four year trough where core protocol work is hard. It's a lot of nitty gritty stuff and it may not seem worth it. Some people are willing to push through that, but you know, if we can at least add a little bit of incentive to the people that are you know, around for a few years and considering other options, that's what we want to do. So the reason the square root function is important is because it just reduces the variance from somebody who's been here for seven years to somebody who's joining more recently and makes the distribution a little bit more equitable. You know, you still have differential across different weights, but we think it makes it a little bit more equitable. So yeah, the two main components, there's a split contract and a vesting contract that work together. Yeah. And one thing that's worth noting is like, we've optimized this as Trent said to be like as simple and minimal as possible. So like, it's not like a DAO that has a big pool of funds and then chooses to allocate it. It's literally like a splitter contract that sends funds to a bunch of different individuals who are then free to do whatever they want with it. They can obviously claim it, keep it, sell it, but it's really, you know, like a better model to think about it. It's more like a router than it is like a DAO, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah, it's like the way you frame it, it's like very, very different from something like Moloch DAO, where it's like there's very deliberate sort of voting and, and decisions based off of how much you contribute. This is just not the case. I will say like, we do use a multi-sig to manage the mutability of the split. And it's composed of members of the split itself. And this is sort of our temporary Temporary evil, we think like long-term, we want to move away from that. And I, funny enough, towards something like a Moloch, which is like kind of the, the gold standard in terms of trustlessness and permissionless. Like anybody who's a member of the set can propose a change to the membership. Like that's ideally what we move towards, but it's just going to take a little bit longer to find the right combination of these mechanisms. That includes sort of this, like we want to be able to accommodate 
weights in a way that works for the project. But ideally, Moloch, the Moloch mechanism where they they can have anybody propose a membership change. That's what we want to move towards. And hopefully, you know, if we're talking about this in a year, we'll have moved past the multi-sig having immutability control. Yeah. What's the latest going on with Moloch? They were one of, if not the first examples of like interesting public goods funding models. And I feel like I saw a lot of discussion a few years ago, but honestly haven't been following closely. Like what's what's going on there? Yeah, I guess this is a big failure on Tim and I's part. Like Moloch DAO is, they were basically one of the first DAO implementations that really took off just based on its simplicity and the Moloch DAO that, that holds the name, I guess, the, the OG one, it did a ton of early work during the bear market, spurring funding for interesting projects, you know, like Tornado Cash was funded by, by Moloch DAO and a ton of other, you know, research reports. That was one of my first exposures to DAO governance. I, I did a research report on the state of mixers in, in 2019, I think. And it was really amazing learning experience for me personally. The founders and the early members, people who contributed capital should definitely get credit for being one of the early experiments here. Today, I'm not, I unfortunately just don't have a ton of time to keep up with what's going on, but there's still funding proposals. They're still working on ways that they can get the ETH treasury out to the community. For sure, they're still doing stuff. It's just maybe a little more competition for attention these days. Yeah, one thing I will say is Moloch is still the main funder for the Ethereum cat herders who provide a bunch of project management help and provide notes for core dev calls meetings. They do like interviews with EIP authors and stuff like that. So that's like one pretty concrete thing that they still are the main, if not sole funders of. So yeah, definitely still value their presence in the space. Got it. Really good to know. To shift gears a little bit in terms of the, the types of things that the protocol guild will will fund. Obviously a lot of it is consensus and, and staking. And sort of with all this recent talk about the merge, it's it's got to be a, a big topic. Another sort of recent, I guess, discussion is just the, the sort of liquid staking situation and, and Lido in particular. I think you guys have spoken a bit publicly about sort of your thoughts and, and just like the different trade-offs for, for and, and against capping the, the STE supply as a proportion. But yeah, just curious, like how you guys, how you guys feel about the debate broadly, like, again, I think you guys have talked about it, your opinions already, but I'm just curious if there's anything to sort of summarize on this podcast. That could be an entire podcast in and of its own. I think there's a bunch of concerns to go in it. There are risks that happen when a specific staking entity has more than a third of the stake, and, and this is starting to be the case with Lido. And then you know, the more Lido side of the debate is that, well, there's not actually only a single staking entity. There's many of them behind the scenes and none of them have, have enough stake to kind of harm the system. I'm not quite sure like how to go over this in five minutes. I do think that like whatever outcome we end up with as a community ends up being like a pretty strong precedent. So I, I think in general of like blockchain governance, as kind of case law, and I'm not a lawyer, so this might be a pretty bad analogy, but it's like every time we make like these big decisions as a community, there's a whole like alternate branch of history that we kind of foreclose and, and you know, we, we then move in, in that direction. And obviously like the biggest one on the theorem side was like the DAO, 
you know, there were some smaller ones with stuff like ProgPow and whether or not that got in. 1559 was probably a, a, another one. And I think, you know, every time there's these like contentious conversations, regardless of which way it lands, the second order effect is like, you know, the entire alternate history gets gets very hard to to explore. I think the reason is just because like what happens is if there's a world where like the Lido people are unhappy, then they obviously probably stop their contributions and others who are on their side would like stop their contributions or lower them. And there's like that kind of part of the ecosystem that, that doesn't happen. And then similarly, if like the people advocating for a cap are unhappy with the outcome, then they might get kind of disenfranchised from Ethereum and lower their contributions and be less engaged in the community. And so I don't know. Yeah, I don't have like specifics and I don't think there's, there's quite enough time to go into them, but that would be like my higher level comment is like, it's really worth thinking hard about what's the second order impact of whatever decision is taken and and making sure that that's also something people consider rather than just the very short term pros and cons. I don't have a very deep or sophisticated view on this. Tim has thought about it much deeper than I have, but I will say that there are norms, there, there, there's precedent for mining pools historically limiting their share in Bitcoin, I know of, and I believe it's happened in Ethereum, self-policing themselves, they understand the risks inherent in having more than 50% share of hash rate. Like this self-policing is not something that's completely a new concept. And I think it underscores the reality that like at the end of the day, blockchains are social constructions and the people that believe in how they operate and where they should go is it's based on who believes in the community and whether they think that it's worth pursuing a certain direction for. So I, I hope that the people that are engaged in the, the Lido discussion just think about that. Whether something is technically possible, that's one thing, but whether it should be a certain way is another thing. Really great perspective and yeah, definitely hard to summarize it in, in a few minutes, but I think you guys did a good job. Definitely an evolving discussion that will... Yeah, set precedence. It's like the butterfly effect, except everyone knows already that whatever happens as a result of, of this debate, I think we'll, we'll have pretty, pretty meaningful messaging for everyone else in the ecosystem. Another topic is just like your guys' experience with coin holder governance broadly. I think there's been lots of angles that this has been talked about from Vitalik talking about why Ethereum is sort of why he thinks it hasn't and, and shouldn't have on-chain formalized governance. And with the past two years, we've seen a lot of DeFi protocols and, and NFT projects launch sort of one coin, one one vote governance, very direct democracy. It's something that I've talked about in this podcast a lot of times, right? Just the trade-offs, how direct democracies in, in, in many or, or even most decisions is just not sort of optimized. It's not ideal. I think it's it's a it's a good starting point in terms of like everything's super decentralized and sort of building up sort of hierarchy from there. But but yeah, I think it feels like to me at least right now, like people are not super bullish on DAO governance, frankly. They criticize it as, as slow and efficient and just like the incentives aren't there. So yeah, curious, like what you guys just gut reactions are to these thoughts. Like, how do you feel about on-chain voting, DAO governance right now? Is this something you guys have, have thought about? I would just say, like, 
there's a big distinction between the core protocol having coin voting governance and the applications on top of it. Obviously, the applications have much more freedom to experiment with different models. But, you know, core Ethereum, the, the protocol itself and how decisions are made about it, I don't see coin voting ever becoming a norm. But if we look back, like, I believe there was a coin vote for the DAO fork. I also think there was a coin vote for Progpow. But for some reason, one or both parties, both parties being like supporters and people against Progpow, they didn't view it as legitimate. So there is a there is a history of coin voting in Ethereum governance, but not anything recent. And I think I think that's probably for the better. There's a lot of challenges that are associated with coin voting, which you touched on a few of them there. I think long term it'll probably be the norm that we don't use coin voting for governance and Ethereum will continue to use rough consensus in the core protocol. There was actually a project called Burn Signal a few years ago, I think also during the maybe 2018 or 2019, that tried to use quadratic quadratic weighting, but you would you would burn certain amounts of ETH. So you know there's a cost associated with it. But yeah, like that project and other coin voting examples, it's never really been a norm for the community to vote on these these projects. And they really, if you notice, they, it really only happens when there's an incredibly contentious decision, one of which resulted in the community forking off. Yeah, maybe the, the way I think about it for coin voting specifically is, do the coin holders actually map to the stakeholders you care about? And this is where, like, if you think about that for like a second, it immediately makes no sense on Ethereum because, you know, there's not really a strong correlation between the largest holders of Ether and like, say, you know, the best developers, the users in general, the people who like want to maintain this platform for the next 10 years. So like, because this mapping between like coin ownership and the stakeholders you're optimizing for is, is, is quite bad, then we never basically use coin votings. And every time we have, like Trent said, people just don't, they view that as at best one of many signals, but we've never made a decision or like broken a tie based on, on coin voting. I do think though, for a lot of DeFi projects, like coin voting probably makes a ton of sense because you can make a much bigger, better claim that like the coin holders of the project are the stakeholders you should be optimizing for. And then the nuance probably gets at like, you know, do you want to optimize for the coin holders today or the coin holders 10 years from now? You know, how do you balance short-term growth versus short-term taking of profits? But those questions seem like much, it seems like there are already answers to those in like the way we run traditional companies, for example. And so I think, I think coin voting makes a lot more sense for things like that. And then it's like interesting if you're building something that's like not quite say like a pure financial product, but also not quite an L1 where you want to have like much stronger kind of neutrality, then you get like this weird middle ground. And I guess we're seeing this right now with optimism, which, you know, to some extent is like not a base layer like Ethereum, but it's also not like just an application. And so they have like this dual governance structure that they're trying with both coin votings on one side and then these soulbound NFTs on the other. And I think that'll be like a really interesting, interesting experiment to see play out. But yeah, I, I think it really comes down to like, who are the stakeholders you're optimizing for? And like, are coins the best proxy you have for them? And if not, then obviously using something else makes much more sense. Yeah, that's a really good distinction. And and yeah, couldn't agree more with your main points. Like, 
yeah, credible neutrality is a guiding principle, but it's very different for sort of L1s versus more specific product and and sort of direct end user experience protocols like like Optimism or, or, or Uniswap. And yeah, definitely think Optimism is a good example of one that it's just is straddling the the line a little bit, right? It has its own product, but it's also sort of has an important strategic role within the ecosystem. So definitely difficult to navigate and, and think about these things. But yeah, I think, think they've taken a quite an interesting approach. Guys, I know we're, we're coming up on time. So yeah, really uh, appreciate you guys coming on today. I know you guys have a few governance proposals sort of coming up and, and some live already with, I think, ENS. So yeah, really excited to see more of it come up for the Protocol Guild. I think what you guys are, are working on is just, yeah, really, really valuable and and balancing some of the incentives for for core development. And yeah, really appreciate the work you guys have, have put in here. Thank you for hosting us. This has been a really interesting conversation and it's always a pleasure to have like a forcing function to get your thoughts out of your head and explain it to somebody else. So I thank you for the opportunity. And I guess if anybody is listening and they're interested in like following along or learning about the project, you can follow us on, on Twitter at Protocol Guild, just the name itself is the handle. And like we alluded to a few times in the, throughout the, the podcast, we are fundraising now for the pilot, which is it lasts for one year as an experiment. We want to understand how this mechanism works, where it's going to fail, where it needs to be improved, kick the tires a bit. So, you know, if you're a protocol or a project, you know, we have, we've had some individuals also contribute to the pilot, but if you're a project or an individual related to a project that's interested in either learning more or participating directly by sponsoring with some form of tokens, we'd love to talk to you. Definitely reach out to myself, Tim, or any of the members. You can find the membership in our docs as well. But yeah, thank you again, Derek, for the opportunity and can't wait to report back to see how the pilot goes. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Trent and Tim. Bye. Thanks.